Have you ever wondered if you can retire early? Is achieving financial independence one of your primary financial goals? Well, today we're going to be talking with a physician that has achieved financial independence in just over a decade after training. Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast, where we are devoted exclusively to the financial well-being of physicians and helping you achieve the financial freedom you deserve. This is your financial residency without the long hours and sleepless nights. Let's welcome your host and primary care physician for your finances, Ryan Inman. Hello and welcome. I'm thrilled to bring you today's guest who is all about fire. And I'm not talking about being a pyro. I'm talking about financial independence and retiring early, also known as fire. Pulling inspiration from Mr. Money Mustache and the White Coat Investor, which he's the first member of the WCI network, it all helped spark this discovery that he could retire sooner rather than later. In fact, he's been in practice for a little over a decade and he's already achieved financial independence. That's just remarkable. Well, when he started out, he didn't know what it was called or how he actually get there. He realized it was achievable, and what was really important to him was this idea of fire. It would set him up to live out his vision of his ideal life. The concept of working because he wanted to, not because he had to. It allowed him to drop his schedule 40%, because money isn't a primary concern now, and it's allowed him to work on his own terms. Sounds pretty amazing to me, guys. So if you haven't figured out who I'm talking about, our guest today is the physician and the blogger behind the site physicianonfire.com. And while he's chosen to remain anonymous for now, hopefully not forever, he does take us behind the scenes a bit on why he chose his specialty and what he went through you know, the process of elimination on what would make him happy. And it's not only the concept of how much he's going to have to scrub in, but what the lifestyle looks like and what the workload looks like. I love the fact that what turned out to be a new year's resolution to himself to actually, you know, start his blog. Thankfully for all of us, it's a resolution that he kept. He's got over a million page views now and it's continuing to grow. He's well into his second year of his blog and it's really taking off. And it's because he writes high quality content for those interested in fire. Today's show is action packed with excellent commentary on topics like the 4% rule and geographic arbitrage with respects to your salary. And this concept of saving 25% of your annual household spending as the baseline for achieving financial independence and able to retire early. And we even kind of nerded out a little bit on the sequence of returns and what that has to do with your ability to achieve financial independence, um, which was pretty interesting and fun. But before we jump in the show, I'd also like to mention that I'll be including a freebie exclusively for those in the Financial Residency Facebook community. If you haven't joined us yet, search for the Financial Residency Facebook community in the Facebook groups and join hundreds of physicians and physician spouses that are already in there today. 2018 is going to be huge for the community. I'll be posting Q&A sessions, setting up some regular Facebook Lives, uh, which I'll also be doing some Q&As live as well. And I'll be creating content exclusively for the community. All of this is free. So I encourage you to join all of us and let's build a solid foundation for your financial future starting right now. 
Here is this week's digestible tip. Okay, so today's quick tip is the difference between an FSA and an HSA. And in the spirit of actually making this a quick tip, I'm not going to go into all the differences and details, but the general idea is that an FSA stands for a flexible spending account. It's an account in which you put money into to pay for certain out-of-pocket health care costs. You don't pay tax on the money. You can put up to $2,600 a year into it, but it has this use it or lose it type policy with the exception of about $500, which can be carried forward year to year. Uh, there's a list of permitted use of funds, but just be careful that you do not overfund this type of account. An HSA stands for a health spending account. You have to have a high deductible health insurance plan to even qualify for an HSA. Uh, some providers will have one. If not, you'd have to go open this up at a third party. You can put up to $3,400 if you're single or $6,750 if you're a family. And the great news is that your balance will carry forward year over year. You never have to worry about losing your savings or the money that you've put into there. It's the only account that I know of that's triple tax-free, which means that the contributions you put in are pre-tax or tax-deductible. The money grows tax-free, and the money that you pull out comes out tax-free as long as it's used for qualified health care costs. Welcome, Physician on Fire, to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm really excited to have you on. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for uh, inviting me. It's an honor. Awesome, man. I know that you go by Physician on Fire, and we don't talk about your real name, but can you kind of enlighten us and tell us a little bit about yourself, the man behind the blog, the man behind the doctor, and kind of why you started everything? Absolutely. I am an anesthesiologist, uh, 41-year-old, father and uh, family man. I've got a couple boys in grade school now, and uh, I've been in practice for 11 plus years. As far as how I got here, going way back, just like probably many of your listeners, I was good at science, got good grades. I had family working in healthcare. My mother was a nurse and her father was a physician. And my dad and his dad were both dentists. And so it came pretty natural, you know, when I was Going through school, that uh, doctor seemed like a pretty good option for me, and I went that way. went to medical school, the same university that I attended for undergrad, which was the University of Minnesota. Went through residency, the whole deal, and yeah, it's been 10, 11, 12 years almost. Uh, next year to be 12. You said your dad was a dentist. Why didn't you become a dentist? That's a great question. I guess I wasn't ready to narrow down what I was going to be doing quite that far as a college student my brother also had at least toyed with the idea of dentistry and maybe i thought he was going to be the dentist so i would do something different but i also realized that medical school would give me a lot of different options to work on mm -hmm. any different part of the body do a surgery or not you know be in clinic or not by going to medical school i still had dozens of different jobs open to me whereas when you go into dental school you're going to be working in the mouth in some capacity, which I ended up doing, I guess, when you look at you know, what my job is, placing breathing tubes in mouths is a big part of it, but uh, there's a lot of other cool stuff I do too. So, Why did you select that specialty? Anesthesia it yeah. seemed pretty complicated and scary to me as an early medical student, first couple of years, so I didn't really think all that much about it. I thought I might want to be a radiologist, well, actually even before that, maybe a pediatrician and then I realized I didn't love clinic after I tried doing a fair amount of clinic. 
And then I thought maybe radiology because I really liked the technology and and some of the uh, cool stuff they get to see and do. And you know, interventional is pretty cool uh, too. But I realized I didn't love being uh, in a dark room in the basement like radiologists are, are more or less uh, pushed down there in the corner of the hospital. And and I don't love being scrubbed in a lot, which without <laughs> interventional radiology and surgery for the most part. I don't want to say it was a process of elimination necessarily, but uh, once I realized I didn't want to do this, that, or the other, and then I decided to enroll in an anesthesia elective, I really did enjoy it. And I realized that the anesthesia machine is actually a fairly, fairly simple tool once you understand how it works. And and I like the flow of the day. You do a lot of different things. And the anesthesiologists that I talked to are, were all pretty happy with what they were doing. And, you know, of course, it is one of the RODE, that's the acronym, radiology, anesthesia, whoops, I, I skipped, oh, ophthalmology and dermatology. And those are known to have pretty good pay and it can be a good lifestyle, at least if you find the right job. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it ended up being a, a good choice for me and I'm, I'm glad that I chose it. That's awesome that you found something that you love that much. And, and uh, speaking of the pay, as my wife is uh, Pete's poem, I can tell you that you probably make a lot more as uh, an anesthesiologist than you would in pediatrics. So probably a good choice. I know doctors don't get into medicine to become wealthy and, and you know, in it for the money, but uh, that's always a consideration. Right. You know, it shouldn't be a primary uh, reason, but uh, I mean, you you have to make some money, you know, student loans and everything else, the late start that we get in life. Mm -hmm. uh, You don't want to totally ignore it. Would you mind, did you have student loans coming out? I did, but not nearly as much as uh, even some of my colleagues and and certainly people coming out now 11 or 12 years later. But I think I think my totals were in the $60,000 range, but I had a full tuition scholarship for undergrad uh, at the state flagship university, and I stayed there for medical school, and I had some scholarships even for that. And back then, I think our tuition started at under ten grand a year for medical school. So, And I did have some family help. Um, my grandfather was a physician. He passed away when I was maybe five years old, uh, and he set up a little bit of money for college for his three grandkids. So I was able to finish undergrad tuition-free, and room and board was covered by other scholarships and uh, a little bit of the fund that he set up. So I actually had money. I uh, was in the black going into medical school. Uh, so I was able to continue living like a college student, just lived in <laughs> junky apartments close to campus, walked you know, to classes and biked and had roommates and all that. So I, I didn't really uh, accrue too much uh, in the way. But sixty grand, and I, I kind of carried that for... I think until about four, three, four years, four or five years ago, probably now that I just decided I was, I was done with it and I had enough money to easily just write a check. That's totally different than the majority of your peers out there that come out with, uh, you know, two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in debt. And yeah, it's incredible. That's the rate of tuition rise over. Well, it's been fifteen years since I finished medical school, but yeah, it's gotten to be really difficult. And so. Like I said, you shouldn't uh, go into medicine to get rich because it takes a very long time even to start to make a good salary. But ignoring money will get you into trouble too. So, And do you think, you know, because we're going to jump here in just a minute into your early retirement and uh, financial independence. Do you think that not having a ton of student debt and, and the, maybe the little assistance from your grandfather and obviously all the hard work and scholarships you achieved, do you think that plays into how you're able to achieve fire so early? 
Yeah, you know, um, it's really just math. And so uh, yeah. having 60000 in student loans instead of 260000 well, that's 200000 less that I had to pay back. 200000 is about the amount that I invest and save every year now that I've taken care of all my debts and everything else. So really, I would say, yeah, maybe that added a year or two if you look at the interest on those loans and everything. So yeah, it, it probably uh, saved me a year or two, but it doesn't mean that what I have accomplished can't be reproduced. It just means it'll take a little more time. That's all. Yeah, that's a that's a great answer that it, it, it didn't prohibit you from doing this. And obviously it helped you, um, but it wouldn't prohibit someone else to achieving what your goals are. And if that is their similar goal of retiring early or achieving financial independence, that just because you have student debt doesn't mean that you are, for lack of a better word, screwed. Um, it just means <laughs> right. you're a year or two behind. So we kind of skipped the reason why you started physicianonfire.com, which is kind of where your thoughts and your blog and everything kind of are held these days. So can you just talk a little bit about why you started that? And then um, maybe we transition into uh, your your goals of early retirement and kind of what you're doing there. Yeah, you know, I never really had any intentions of retiring early, at least not uh, early in my 40s, like it looks like is going to happen for me now. I was just doing my job and trying to make money, trying to save money. Like I said, I retired those debts. I even got rid of the mortgage. And it wasn't until about two and a half years ago that I was reading uh, just a random money, I think MSN site, and found this article about Mr. Money Mustache, who is a blogger that... uh, retired at age 30 from an engineering career. And he talks all about how much money you need to live a good life, how much it takes to be able to retire early, what percentage or what multiple of your annual spending you need and all of that. And we can talk more about what the specifics are later. But I found his message to be really interesting and encouraging. And from that site, I also found the White Coat Investor and learned a little more about investing. I had read some other sites like Bogleheads, and and I was already doing everything myself, but reading his site solidified some of my knowledge. And and when I really looked at the numbers and I looked at where we were financially, I was flabbergasted to realize that we could retire any time we wanted. And I thought that was really a, an amazing, I guess, discovery. And it's not something I necessarily planned for. I had been saving, but I didn't necessarily know what for. And then once I realized that work was optional, I wasn't ready to turn in my 90 days notice or anything. Mm -hmm. But I thought this is probably a a story worth sharing. And then I I thought, well, why don't I do what these guys did? Mr. Money Mustache, the white coat investor, they're sharing their story, you know, once or twice a week, putting out these articles, helping people and forming these communities. And I thought I'd kind of take a stab at it. So I published my first blog post January of 2016. I made it a New Year's resolution to actually start this idea that I had formed in my mind. And uh, it grew steadily. And here we are, fall of 2017. And within a couple hours now, and I've been watching the stats today, but I'll have a a million page views for the year as of uh, probably three or four this afternoon. Wow! So it's, it's caught on. 
Yeah, it definitely has. And, and I, I love your writing. I admit to reading your site. I actually thoroughly enjoy the way you write. And it's interesting because physicians, they might not necessarily have the best writing style, but yours is quite different. And you, you have a lot of humor in your writing. And, you know, I try to write on finance and sometimes it's really dry. Sometimes it's fun. And I try to make it fun. You definitely make it fun. And so I encourage our listeners to head over to physicianonfire.com and check out some of his writing. It, it's really great stuff. I thoroughly enjoy it. Well, thanks for the plug, Ryan. Yeah, I mean, I know this is pretty dry material. A lot of it is, although I, I do get into happiness and wellness and living a good life, having a good time. But yeah, if you're just talking about 401ks and withdrawal rates and and you don't have a little fun with it, it's not going to bring people back. So, And I kind of picked that up reading Mr. Money Master. She's really good at really... You know, grabbing you and, and getting your attention and and having some humor injected into what otherwise is a you know, potentially a boring topic. Yeah, he has a different target market though. I mean, you're really targeting your peers and he's not just targeting engineers. He's targeting everyone that wants to have extreme frugality basically and hit, you know, early retirement or financial independence. I'm kind of like MMM light for uh, the high income professional. And we don't necessarily have to do all the things that he and his family have done or uh, some of the uh, people who follow his blog uh, write about doing. But I will say that having uh, read all of his stuff and actually met him in person, that he's not necessarily about extreme frugality. Like there's a guy named Jacob from Early Retirement Extreme who definitely Mm -hmm. is. Like Mm -hmm. he spends 7000 a year. And I think now he's married, and as a couple anyway, they're spending 14000 a year. That's pretty extreme, and they're in the Bay Area, of all places, doing wow. that. So Mr. Money Mustache last year, I believe, spent $30,000. He, he publishes an annual uh, report. And I looked at what we're doing, and we're on track to be about double that. And that's what we were last year, 62000 in spending. Mm-hmm. But if you take away one of our kids, because he only has one, and you take away our international travel, because he doesn't really go a lot of places. I think he spent time in Canada with his brother last year. But mm-hmm. And then the fact that we have a second home uh, a couple states away and all the driving we do back and forth from that place, we would be pretty close. And, and certainly, I don't think we have any level of extreme frugality. And having seen his home and then the way he lives and reading his stuff, they're, they're not extreme in any ways. They're just not uh, extravagant in any way either. And his point isn't necessarily to spend the least amount of money. What he's really trying to do is tell you you should bike there because it's better for you. So he's trying to promote healthy living, and he also wants what's healthy for the environment. He, he said um, in different places that his blog is a, it's an environmental slash healthy living blog disguised as a finance site. So Interesting. Okay. Yeah, kind of a different take on that, but... My readers are making six figures, and uh, you can also even spend six figures for making double that. Mm-hmm. And you can reach financial independence in a, in a very reasonable amount of time. If you're saving 5 10%, 15% of your income, you're going to be working a, a full career. And that's fine, too, if that's what you want to do. It's all about choices, and I just try to help people realize that you know, if you make certain choices – you're going to hit this financial independence number, which is a number that means work is optional because your investments should or will, based on tons and tons of academic research, will give you enough money to live your life essentially off the returns from your investments. 
and that's based. Is this a good time to go into the math? Absolutely. Like the four percent rule. Sure. Yeah. So, looking at historical returns, looking at basically worst case scenarios. If you look at what's happened over the last hundred plus years, or if you take just a random sampling and do what they call a Monte Carlo simulation, you can see well what is the most you could take out for every year indefinitely or some of the studies looked at a 30-year timeline but if you make it 30 years you're probably going to make it indefinitely and it turns out that about four percent is as high as you can go and still not run out of money or have a very low chance of running out of money over the course of that 30 plus year retirement timeline and there are years where if you would have taken out 8% per year, and then that's adjusted with inflation. So you, you take out a little more each year, uh, you'd be fine. But that's because you had a pretty good sequence of returns, had nice returns early on, which really boosted your retirement, your nest egg mm-hmm. value. But if you retired like in the beginning of a huge inflationary period or right before the dot-com crash or the 28-29 you know, downfall, well, then you saw your money fall. But if you only drew the 4%, you'd still end up Okay, so 25 times what you spend in a year, and that is the equivalent of spending only 4% of your money per year. And that is the sort of the magic FI number to be conservative. Some people like 30 or 33, and that's kind of where I'm at. But if you just want to really just a number to shoot for, figure out what you spend in a year, multiply that by 25, and that's your FI target. Perfect. And, and you mentioned a couple of things. So sequence of returns. And how mm-hmm. much in your own situation do you believe that the sequence of returns really helped you achieve your goal of financial independence versus starting maybe at a different point? You know, obviously we can't go back and shift ages and times, but you know, if someone was to start, let's say now where the market's 22,000 versus, you know, maybe when you started, the market was at 8,000. I'm just I'm I'm talking about the Dow. I know we don't really do that, but I'm trying to give some point of reference. Yeah, no, that that's a great question, and it also almost makes a great point if it's a rhetorical question, which in a way it is, because I finished a residency in June of 2006, um, and at that time the market was doing well. It did well for the first year, but then it took a nosedive mm-hmm. over the next 15 months and bottomed out in 2009. But I, I was pretty much oblivious because at that time I didn't plan on retiring early. I was in this for the long haul. So I just kept Mm. shoveling money in, investing, maxing out what at the time was a SEP IRA because I was an independent contractor doing nothing but locums for the first two years. And then I was still an independent contractor when I took my first quote unquote permanent job. But by putting money in as the market went down at the bottom and on the way back up, I ended up really getting a nice boost from that drop. That's actually a good thing when you're earning money to see it fall as long as it comes back, which it has um, several times over. So Mm -hmm. I think the timing really worked out well for me, and that's just purely luck. Now, when we talk about sequence returns, that just means what's the return year over year. Now, if I were to retire today, and let's say we have a, a repeat of 2000 or 2009, and the stock market loses half its value, Now, it's probably unlikely that we're going to see a third event like that when we've only seen three in 100 years, two of them in the last 15, 20 years. Maybe it's not likely, but it would be somewhat damaging to my portfolio. And there are things you can do, of course, to mitigate the risk. Having a lower stock percentage in your allocation is one way. But by doing that, you're also running the risk of 
lower long-term returns. So you have to weigh your investment horizon and and how many years you have left on this earth when you (laughs) think about making a switch like that. But that's really why we have the 4% rule and not the 6 or 8% rules, because you could see a big downturn like that early on. And if you make it through the first 5 or 10 years without that, then you probably will be okay withdrawing a higher percentage of your initial portfolio. We're going to see what happens. Um, I don't know exactly when I'll retire. I am dropping my schedule by 40%. I'll be working uh, a 0.6 FTE position starting next month. And I'm pretty excited about that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, And that's just one thing that uh, being financially independent allows me to do. Money is not a primary concern right now. And I'd like to reclaim some time. Yeah. And and you know what's interesting is a different way of looking at kind of that last little bit that you you talked about, about lowering your full-time employment is that you kind of are hedging your early retirement exit and what the market and the sequence of returns might be doing because you're not just cutting cold turkey and saying, okay, now it's really time to live off the investments. If we do have a big correction, even if it's not 50, 30, 40, whatever it might be, you're still working money still coming in that you can technically live off without liquidating investments. And right. in, in theory, you're, you're actually hedging, which is not a bad call if you're trying to kind of hit this early retirement or financial independence, however you want to phrase it, or combined, which is an interesting strategy. Is that what you intended to do? You know, I didn't, uh, I didn't have a grand plan. Like I said, I kind of uh, stumbled into this. I didn't know what financial independence was until I read about it a couple, two and a half years ago. And then I crunched the numbers and said, oh, I have this. This is awesome. Okay. And what do I do about it? Um, and it wasn't until a couple of years later that I said, well, I, maybe I should start uh, enjoying some of the fruits of uh, my labor and doing some of the things that I talk about and write about, telling everyone else that they can live the life they want to live. Well, shoot, why don't I start taking less call and taking advantage of this? So I had a conversation with uh, my colleagues and, and it went well, and uh, they decided to pick up the slack a little bit, work a little bit more, and I'm going to work a little bit less. And yeah, we'll see how it goes. And then I'm also in the same way, kind of hedging with uh, this website, which is starting to earn a little bit of money. And if you can just replace a portion of your spending with a, a quote-unquote side hustle, something that you do on the side to to earn a little bit of money in early retirement or in regular retirement, and then you don't need as much money. you know. And so you, you can do the math on that one too. Let's say you want to use the 4% rule, so you need 25 times whatever. And Let's say you want to retire, but you only have 20 times your normal spending. Well, then you just uh, you need to make up for that extra. So you take your, let's say you spend $100,000 a year, you're short 20000 a year because you've only saved 20 times and not 25 times. Well, then you just need to earn $20,000 a year doing something. And that might be a few weeks of locums a year. That might be uh, writing, podcasting, blogging, talking about things right in this little narrow niche, mm-hmm. but it might be MLM thing you do might be uh, just working at REI or being a ski instructor or a tour guide on a river in a kayak or something. So, um, yeah, really there are, there are lots of ways to uh, <laughs> you know, hedge, hedge that bet. Mm-hmm. Really yeah. what you're saying is is whatever you enjoy at that point doing and, and getting to the point of what you enjoy. And I always talk over at Physician Wealth with my clients is finding out your why. Like what is your true why? Why do you want to do something? Money is just a tool to get you from point A to point B. Obviously, money's important, so you can do things you enjoy. But what are those things that you enjoy? 
And when people, and I read about it a lot of, of this, this fire financial independence, retire early, they seem to me, a lot of them give up a lot of living kind of their great life and living in the now versus, you know, balancing, it's this balancing act between frugality and, and living. So how did you kind of go about this? Were you always someone that spent within their means and didn't get the ooh shiny object syndrome? <laughs> yeah, I think you nailed it. I have never been a big spender. You know, I'm someone that kind of gets a lift out of finding a good bargain and getting a good deal and luxury just doesn't appeal to me. I mean, even you know, like we get a CME allowance and it's generous. And last year I went to uh, Hawaii and stayed at a four or five star hotel on the beach. And it was really nice, but uh, I almost feel like uncomfortable when someone wants to park my car for me and grab my bags. And I'm like, oh no, I got it. Like, cool, I can, I can do this. And I'm just as comfortable. And the three star hotel, that costs half as much. And same thing with restaurants and whatnot. I've dined at $100 plate, $200 plate restaurants. And eh, I mean, yeah, I can take it or leave it and be just as happy at uh, a much more modest uh, place. So yeah, I'm not a big spender. I found that it's it's not difficult for me to save a significant portion of my anesthesiologist income. Yeah. It and, just it's natural. Yeah, and and I kind of wanted you to bring that out because when you said, "Look, two and a half years ago I kind of stumbled on this idea and here I am pretty much almost able to do it." That is like extremely rare. Uh, and that's a lot of hard work. And that is something that you were already kind of doing and then just found out what it was called is almost kind of the way I'm looking at it. Because for some people, some physicians, this isn't normal, right? Spending mm-hmm. 5000 6000 a month, that honestly, for even some of my clients, is their student loan payment. And then they you know, right. necessarily, if they live in the Bay Area um, or if they live in LA or if they live in New York, you know, some of these extremely high cost living areas, like their rent is $3,000. Oh yeah. No, it's crazy. And, and you bring up, uh, you know, something that I've taken advantage of and not necessarily on, on purpose or for this reason, but I call it geographic arbitrage or geographical arbitrage where you, you know, in medicine and, and it's kind of unique with us, but the places that are maybe considered less desirable by some, by that I mean rural and, and uh, middle of the country, mm. tend to pay more. Whereas in law, finance, a lot of other high-income specialties, the high-paying jobs are in the big cities. They're in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Boston, etc. You know, you can take advantage of that if you're willing and interested and living in a place that not everyone wants to be. Now, I happen to be from Minnesota, so that makes it pretty easy for me. And my mm-hmm. wife is from the upper Midwest, too. And, and so we've lived in, and I've worked in uh, both of our home states. And if you look at the salary heat maps or you know, just look at the average pay and, and some of the different uh, surveys, MGMA, AMGA, you know, they'll, they'll show you that uh, places like the Midwest, maybe the rural south, there are jobs that pay more than uh, than you'll find in the big population centers on the coasts. Yeah, this is almost a, a very easy explanation of supply and demand. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of demand, 
for jobs in the Midwest and, and, uh, or there's not a lot of demand, excuse me, of jobs in the Midwest. So they have to pay more to attract the supply, which would be the doctors to come out there. Whereas San Diego, you know, there's not a very high demand for doctors because there's so many doctors that want to live in San Diego that they can afford to pay less because there's just simply more of you wanting to live there, uh, right out at the beach. So, and you know what? Little secret here: if you earn, let's say, a hundred thousand dollars more per year when you live in Minnesota, you can fly to San Diego and New York and Miami, you know, once a month and still come out way, way ahead. So it's all about uh, just realizing that there are different ways to take advantage of those you know, different prices in different markets. Absolutely, and you can even get even more in the weeds and go, what states don't have state tax that I save eight, nine, ten percent or more? Yep, and I'm in one of the highest income tax states, of course. Minnesota is almost 10% mm-hmm. for the, I think it's above 250000 for a married couple. Anyway, but we're happy to pay it. I'm happy where I'm at. So, yeah. yeah in some ways, you get what you pay for, too. You know, I found that out working in a place that didn't have a state income tax. They also didn't have the same uh, services or level of uh, government support. So, good point to make there. And now it's time for the curbside consult. The first question I have is there's a physician and their spouse is a working spouse, but in a much lower paying field. They have kids and they're earlier in their career. Is early retirement possible with the costs of childcare and large student debt? Is that possible for them to achieve early retirement? Yeah. Well, I'll start by, I think we should kind of separate financial independence and early retirement because not, not every physician, especially a physician is starting out in their career is going to want to retire early or think that they'll ever want to do that, right? We're mm-hmm. usually pretty enthusiastic and uh, there's a reason we went into medicine. You know, I think we should aim for financial independence, which just gives you a lot of options and that one of those options is to retire early. But there are other options like working less like I'm going to do or you could do more mission work or you could take a job that's lower paying where maybe you're teaching two or three days a week and not doing clinical work, but money doesn't matter. So that aside, um, can it happen? Sure. It's just a function of the numbers. So in this case, you've got a working spouse and kids. You know, I did it with a spouse who did not hold down a full-time job, but stayed home with our kids. And, you know, hopefully the, the spouse that's working is at least making enough money to cover the cost of childcare. And if not, then I think you might want to reevaluate why that uh, spouse is working. Because if you're not even making enough to cover the cost of caring for your kids that are in daycare, well, maybe staying home is a good option. I know it was for us. And of course, student loan debt, we kind of covered that earlier, you know, for every hundred thousand dollars you have that's another year or two or maybe six months if you're in a high paying specialty um, that you'll be delayed in your quest for financial independence or early retirement so it, it certainly can be done you know if you start from the point of having nothing which for some will take three or five years or more but if you can get to a net worth of zero and live on half of your take-home pay then the math works out. If you have normal-ish, even slightly below average returns, you end up having enough money to call yourself financially independent with 25 years worth of expenses saved up in about 15 years. So if it takes you five years to pay off your loans and you can live on half of what you take home, and most physicians or physician families should be taking home at least 150000 after taxes. So if you can live on 75000 and again, that's after student loans are gone. 
eh, 15 years. Now, if you're making, let's say, taking home 300,000 after taxes, you can live on 150 grand, which is a pretty nice life in most places anyway. And you still can reach that, uh, that magic number within about 15 years. If we have lower returns, maybe 20. I'd say by age 55, it, it should be possible if you are willing to save a significant portion of your income. Great answer. I love dropping the math. I'm a money nerd. So of course I I like that, but it was very easy to understand and great points that you made. And you know, one thing that I want to kind of jump in and say is that for the majority of my clients, when we talk about our goals and what they want to do, it isn't about early retirement and it's more about the financial independence to do what they want to go to. Some of them want to literally change careers. They say, you know, after 20 years, I'll have my fair share of medicine. It'll be awesome and fun. But then yep. I want to go work in something else. And some of them are, I want to be the guy at 70 that has you know three shifts and I work the, the prime shifts and I just get to see patients still and, yep. and hang out. But it's that financial independence. So by talking about early retirement, it, you can use them interchangeably. And that was a, a great point to make. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I I think by focusing more on the early retirement, that narrows the focus and maybe turns a lot of people off. And so I do try to highlight the benefits of achieving financial independence, uh, regardless of whether or not you think you might want to retire early. And to be honest, like I said, I, I didn't think that is something I would want to do until I knew it was an option. And then I really thought about, well, you know, looking at what we could do as a family while the kids are still young, you know, with big travels and with this part-time schedule, we're going to, like I said, kind of try to have the best of both worlds. I'll, I'll squeeze most of my shifts into a, a short period of time, let's say seven to 10 days in the month, and then I'll be off for a few weeks at a time. Mm. And so we're going to take the four of us to uh, on a family uh, Spanish immersion experience and go to uh, school every day and, and learn uh, Spanish from people who speak it in their native language. So that's something we're doing in November. You know, I'm going part-time in October. So we're, we're taking advantage of those, uh, those options right off the bat. That's amazing. I love it. I love when people figure out their why and what they want to accomplish, and then they go off and do it. It's amazing. So great, great job and congratulations there. I've got two more questions for you. So can physicians in low-paying specialties, and I'll just use my wife as an example, like Pete's Palm, can they achieve fire at a young age like yourself? Uh, I, I think I somewhat answered part of this already in the last question, but mm-hmm. I would also point out that while it's certainly true that on average some specialties pay less than others, that there's a pretty wide range within each specialty of salaries. Now, if you're purely academics, then you're yeah you're going to be looking at at lower lower paying uh, jobs typically, not exclusively. Again, if you look at geographic arbitrage, you look at different private practice models, owning a practice, et cetera, you know, someone who works in a specialty that the average pay is low might be making double the average. So mm-hmm. don't assume that you're locked into a, a low paying job just because it's a quote unquote low paying specialty. And that just comes down to the math again. If you're making 180000 a year in a place with a high cost of living and have a half million in student loans, you're going to have to change at least one, if not several of the of the variables in that situation, or or you're just not going to be able to live a uh, the life you want to live and retire early. You got to do one or the other, or like I said, change a variable by 
increasing your income or finding a place that you can be happy uh, with a lower cost of living, et cetera. So they're all kind of choices and you know, some of those are made for us. We have family concerns that certainly plays a huge role in where we want to live. Some people don't want to shovel snow and I can't blame them. So, uh, you know, it's just a matter of deciding what's most important to you. And if financial independence isn't one of those things, then, you know, you can be happy in uh, the places that we talked about that cost a lot of money, but there's a reason they cost a lot of money. People want to be there. Absolutely. Uh, Another great answer. And and I I know you did touch on it in the first one, but I, I thought there's some really good points that you made that I really wanted to kind of emphasize. And, yeah. and so thank you again for sharing that one. And my last question for you is kind of more general, if you will, but you know, what's your top or maybe your top two recommendations to those still in residency that haven't finished concerning their finances? And this doesn't necessarily mean have to mean fire. This just means, you know, what, what are your top one or two things that you would recommend to them for success? Uh, sure. When I was a resident, I didn't save much money. I did have a, an IRA, a traditional IRA, and I think I put uh, maybe 2000 a year into that. But then I also took out a $7,000 loan, so that, that pretty much canceled out any savings I was doing, or maybe that's where the money came from, if you want to look at it that way. As far as my recommendations, I would just say that just know that it gets a lot easier. And so it's important to try to save a little bit of money if you can, if you're in a position to do so, just to have that habit and that mindset that you know you want to uh, put a few thousand into, let's say, a Roth IRA. And Roth is actually a pretty good option when you're making a low income because you're not going to defer a whole lot of tax by uh, taking a traditional 401k or IRA tax deduction for your contribution. So yeah, if you're going to invest, and I think you should do at least a little bit if Roth is available to you, do that. But on the other hand, I wouldn't stress too much over investing for the long haul because you know, you're only going to be doing this residency for a short period of time. It's awfully difficult to get through. The hours are quite long and arduous. So take that vacation. You know, If it comes down to we can either put an additional 2500 into our 401k or 403b or whatever it is, or we can take that trip back home to see our family or we can go to that island that we just want to go lay on the beach and forget about the world for a while. I think you should do that. There are ways to do that without blowing the budget. Look up travel hacking and that could be a whole different conversation, but you can get credit card bonuses that will give you free airline tickets and free hotel nights and and all that kind of stuff. So there are ways to even have your vacations that I think are really important when you're a hardworking resident without totally busting uh, the bank. Yeah, that's great. And as long as you're not taking our credit card debt to have that vacation, I actually do agree with that. It, life just gets a little tougher and uh, responsibilities and, and everything kind of add up right, right as you get out of residency and you kind of hit, I almost want to say the real world. And so if you can go visit family or, or go take that vacation without racking up credit card debt, it probably is a, a good choice there. And I actually like that choice, which is against what most financial advisors would say, but just kind of living through it and understanding what that really means. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the travel during residency, if you are lucky enough to get some days off and you're not sleeping at the hospital, then yeah, I actually do recommend that. Yeah, you only get usually two or three weeks. Uh, I think for me, it was two weeks plus uh, a week for a conference. And so, you know, take advantage of that time and uh, use it to kind of get back in touch with yourself in the real world. 
and your point about not using credit card debt to do it is a good one because it will add up over, uh, especially if you're talking about doing that in the internship year of a of a seven year residency or something. Yeah, and and then also, you know, realize well, shoot, that two thousand or three thousand dollars a year that you didn't get into your four hundred one k as a resident, well, you're gonna be able to do that every month once you get out. You know, you'll make as much usually in your first couple three months as an attending that you did an entire year of residency. So don't sweat too much that you didn't max out your IRA because you'll be able to make up for it later. And that's kind of what the approach I took by taking out a I think it was a seven thousand dollar anesthesia foundation loan. And I paid it back by doing one week of locums in between finishing residency and taking the uh, written board exam on uh, July 7th, that Saturday. So I just went right out, (laughs) made that money, paid it off. And one week gave me a whole bunch of spending money from residency. So yeah, that worked well for me. That's great advice. And and it's all about perspective, right? So put it into perspective, what's, what's going on, what's coming, and just be responsible enough to not dig yourself in a hole of credit card debt. I, I love the recommendations. That was awesome. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for being on and Physician on Fire. You can read up on him and hear more about him. And I, I'm really, really excited to to see how the blog takes off when you don't have a full-time job. Because right now it's an awesome place. That's physicianonfire.com. And is there anything else you want to tell our listeners before we head out? Thanks for listening. And like you've mentioned, you can find me at physicianonfire.com. I'm on Twitter, just the at symbol physicianonfire. I'm fairly active on Facebook as well with a pseudonym, but if you search Physician on Fire, you'll find the the blog page on Facebook too. So lots of ways to interact with me. And I agree, I think it'll be pretty nice to actually be working less because I talked about reclaiming my time and I do put a lot of time into not only writing for the blog, but all the other ways I interact with readers in the different formats and forums and And so it will be a relief and it'll be fun to maybe do some of the things I've been thinking about doing, but just haven't found the time uh, to do. Oh, awesome. The teaser. I love it. I love (laughs) it. Well, I'm excited to see what you do. And thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Physician on Fire. I hope that this gives you some inspiration too, to go out and find out what your ideal life looks like and to chase after that vision. It was clear to me that Physician on Fire had this vision of his ideal life as achieving financial independence early in his career and then being able to work part-time on his own terms. While that won't be for everybody, I really do encourage you to find out what your ideal life looks like and to go chase that dream. Next week, I'll be interviewing a very successful resident who's built this really unique blog that caters to physicians and their finances. He's a pretty remarkable guy and The idea that he can fit in a profitable side gig uh, while he's still in training is super impressive. And I think that you'll be just as impressed as I was after hearing our show. Also, just a quick reminder, go download the freebie for this show that's located in the Financial Residency Facebook group. While you're there, introduce yourself, ask a question, be vocal, be friendly. I'll be in there answering those questions, hosting live video chats, as well as creating exclusive content for the community. So I encourage you to join us now and let's take control over your household finances together. Thank you for listening to the Financial Residency Podcast. This episode has ended, but your financial residency continues online.
head over to financialresidency.com, where you'll find links to any resources mentioned in today's episode, along with other valuable tips and information that will help you regain your financial freedom. That's financialresidency.com.